Hi, everyone. Welcome to Let's Talk About Skills, baby. I am your host, Kelly Bailey. Each week, I chat with inspiring visionaries about the skills that make them successful, how they developed those skills, and their innovative approaches to improving skills-based hiring and learning around the world. Come learn what skills help you live your best life. So our guest today is Matthew Alex. Um, Matt is the founder of a new organization called Beyond Academics and is extremely passionate about the future of higher education. We are definitely in common on that one. <laughs> uh, he also recently led the student technology and transformation practice as a partner at Deloitte Consulting and Deloitte's Smart Campus and Future of Work initiatives. Prior to that, he was the founder of HTS Consulting, a technology and services company serving higher education. Matt was also named Global Forum for Education and Learning's Top 100 Leaders in Education and is an EdTech Awards Trendsetter trend for 2020. He also holds a master's degree in education from the University of Illinois at Chicago. Matt, wow, thank you so much for joining us today. Like those are some amazing accomplishments. I can't believe those, the EdTech Awards Trend Center this year, this is amazing. Well, thanks a lot. I, first of all, thanks for having me. I, I, am, I am excited and passionate about what's in front of us. We're in a, in a time that we will all look back and, and recognize there was a shift and, and, and I'm excited to be a part of that. And uh, I'm excited to see what really comes from that. And, and I'm excited for everything that's gonna give us the opportunity to transform. So, and to get on the awards, it's, it's ironic. You know, I've been in, in, uh, in higher ed for about 30 years. And for 20 of those, I, I've been in, you know, consulting and consulting student systems. And I never got an award. Like, it was like, I just did the, the work of, of everyone else. And, and as a student, you know, uh, leader in, in student technology, you know, it was just part of what every university did, you know, and, yeah. and when I started to really focus on smart campuses and future of learning and, and the future of higher ed, uh, people started to notice and started to understand it. And uh, the awards are just uh, an indication that, you know, there's so much more to do in higher ed that uh, I'm excited and, uh, and I'm grateful for those awards too. Oh, well, congratulations. That's fantastic. I really want to jump back a little bit and start off at the beginning of your journey into all of this, because it sounds like you've just had a really interesting background. So you started working at a registrar's office. Is that right? I did. I did. Oh, my goodness. I, um, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's one of those things in higher ed, we, we all kind of stumble into higher ed. No one ever gets a degree and says, hey, I'm going to go become a, a registrar's office, you know, uh, counselor or a registrar or, or anything like that. You know, higher ed is really about a um, set of people who become passionate about higher ed. And I, and I got that opportunity. I, I was uh, given the opportunity uh, to join the admissions and records office. And that allowed me to understand what I was doing in, in the world. I, I'm a, I'm a criminal justice major, um, and I'm a real proud criminal justice major because I think some of the things that I learned in my undergrad, uh, I still apply today. And, and today I design you know, some of the most advanced technologies around, and yet I've never you know, coded or I've never had those type of technologies. But the things I learned in my criminal justice uh, days was really important. And then when I, when I married that with uh, my work within a registrar's office, I started to understand how the world worked. And that was a really important time for me um, for, to explore, you know, my own skills. You know, you come out of college and everyone thinks you got to know everything. And, and I don't think that's true. I think uh, when you come out of college, you are there to explore not only what you're learning, but what you're really passionate about. And I will tell you the admissions office and the records office at UIC uh, gave me that opportunity opportunity to, to do that. I got to find myself in so many different ways. I eventually went to run a, uh, a law school and that also gave me a, a set of wow. just different perspectives. And um, the law school really taught me that students were the customer. 
You know, when I was at the, at the undergrad side of UIC, you know, the process was what we had to manage. But when I went to the law school, I recognized, you know, it was the students that mattered. It was the law students that we had to support as they started to embark on their own journeys. And, and that has allowed me to bring just a new perspective. Even when I consult a university now, my first question is about the students and mm -hmm. the faculty and, and everyone else we support. So what, you know, if I love that you talk about the students being the customer, you and I have had many conversations about that to begin with, but, you know, going back to that initial experience and then that work that you did running the law school, um, you know, were there certain areas that or certain challenges that you saw that really helped you develop that sort of thought process around the student being the customer? Yeah, and I, and I think part of the way that I learned it was um, I looked at policies different at the law school. Policies were, were, were okay to be challenged. If you think about the law student themselves, they're, they're asked to challenge, right? True. Uh, True. At an undergrad, at an undergrad, at a big university, you're just one of many people. And so those policies were set in stone and you follow and, the rules, followed to the T. And, you know, when I worked at and I worked at the registrar's office in my entry level side of the registrar's office, I followed the rules. I followed the protocols because it was it was process centric. It was institutional centric. So it didn't matter if I had a student crying because he or she missed a deadline to drop a class. And now they owe, you know, all of that. Uh, tuition, right? It didn't matter at that time. It was black or white. Wow. And I think even today, when I think about the way that I design a university or even have a discussion, I take that into consideration about the spirit of the rule. What is the spirit of the rule and how do we take, take a, a perspective around that? But when I was at the law school, the rules were set by the dean. His name was Howard. And Howard was a a very rigid man when I had to ask him for favors or ask him for an exception. But if a student went to him and said, hey, I need this exception or I want this exception, he would give me a call back and uh, say, hey, Matt, I saw that you uh, rejected you know, John's request to add the course. Uh, go ahead, I'll, I'll okay it. And, I, and, I, and I, at that time, I, I would look like a fool in front of the law student because because I was telling him, you have to follow the rule, you have to follow it, and then he or she would go up to the, the dean and get it overridden, right? But at that time, I was frustrated about it, but what I recognized was that the students appreciated it. The students appreciated Howard. The students appreciated even the fact that I put rules in place for them during those times. The students recognized I was going through protocol, right? Mm -hmm. And so I learned a little bit of, is the rule really a rule or what is the spirit of the rule? I, I speak about spirit of the rule all the time. Why do you do it? And most universities and colleges that I speak to when I'm asking about certain activities, people don't know why they're doing it. And that's because they've been just following the protocol yep. without understanding the spirit of what you're really trying to serve, which is really the student and the faculty. Everyone kind of forgets the faculty and this whole student-centric element of it. But right. faculty are as important in the way that we encounter uh, the community that we serve. The mm -hmm. faculty have to be on board. The faculty has to be empowered. The students have to be able to be aligned. And that's where the driving uh, force is going to come from as we transform anyways. Yeah. And I love that you talk about, I mean, it's almost like this could apply to anything, right? Anything in your life, really. It's that concept yes. we talk so often about, you know, trying to sort of like break these rules, meaning like innovate, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's so interesting to me that in an environment where, like you said, we're training these students to second guess, <laughs> to yeah. push the boundaries, to expand themselves. And we're just trying to keep in our box of... <laughs> <laughs> this has to be this way. Uh, I, I just find that yeah, really funny yeah. in that environment. But I do, I really, now that you've said this, I really think this is something that can apply sort of across the board to anyone's life. I love that you learned it in this environment and that you're now taking it into this work 
working directly with schools to help them think this through. So before we jump in a little bit more to, you know, I, I, I want to touch back on faculty for a second, because you're right, often, you know, we forget. And I'm really curious in all of this experience, what you've learned about, you know, needs of faculty, challenges that you see there, and how the work that you're doing now can kind of help that along as well. Yeah, well, you know, when, when I decided to embark on Beyond, we thought about all the areas we would, we would focus on in, in the aspects of future, right? Mm -hmm. What's the future of student? What's the future of work? What's the future of consulting? Uh, we also recognized we had to talk about future of uh, the learning elements of it that really mattered and faculty had to embark on it. Um, when I think about, when I have my keynotes, I've ha I do keynotes pretty often now, and it's funny because provosts will always ask me uh, after I have their, you know, uh, discussions with them, they're like, can you now speak to our faculty? Because it's almost yeah. like uh, provosts are afraid because they need to get consensus from the faculty. So right? true. And I even get that question all the time. They're, what would you say to faculty about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I, it's interesting. That's a question that I get. And even pre-pandemic, so there is a, what I would call right. post-pandemic keynote that I've done and yep. pre-pandemic keynote uh, done. In both cases, I'm still talking about future of learning. I'm talking about future of work. But the way that I narrate it now is slightly different mm -hmm. because faculty actually recognize they have to have a change in what they do, right? There I is a, the future of learning is, is gonna be dynamically different um, and in my, one of my keynotes that I'll be doing in the next couple of weeks, I was just framing the discussion with the, the provost. I actually title it Empowering Faculty Through the Future of Learning. I love uh, that. The reason I say that is that faculty have to recognize when we think about the future of learning, it actually centers around them and the knowledge. If you think about what, a, what the asset is within a university, it is the faculty and their knowledge mm -hmm. that they're disseminating to their students who become products and brands of that campus, right? So the, the faculty yeah. become the key element of disseminating and creating what goes into market. So I, I really believe it's empowering the faculty in that way. The future of learning has these, what I call like 10 tenets that, um, that I really am driving towards, right? It's convenience and it's, uh, it's agile, it's, it's mobile, it's, um, it's scalable, it's all these things that we know and recognize that the, the future of learning has to come through. But we also have to now show how an educational marketplace, which is part of the 10, is gonna empower a faculty member Right, so if, if the value of a faculty member is their knowledge and, uh, and it's, I would say, artifact that they're creating, mm -hmm. you know, a lecture is an artifact, a, mm -hmm. a, a, um, a, a some sort of discussion is an artifact, a, um, a writing of theirs is an artifact, right? right? They're creating artifacts. And artifacts, if used properly, you can actually gain real great value through that. If you think about, um, a artist who does music, he's creating an artifact. Right. In the old days, we would sell it on a record and it would get lost. The, we would get two good records and then you get lost on the other eight, right? right. Now, now the way that iTunes and everyone works is every song is important and it becomes an artifact. And in some cases, what the artist thought would be good or what would be the, but the hit isn't the hit, it was the other songs. I believe that's the same thing for faculty. Faculty have the ability to create artifacts in an educational marketplace that allows for students to, to gather the information that they need. They're also empowered by allowing them to become peer-to-peer -peer experts. Mm -hmm. So the person that's really an expert in AI and applying it to you know, something in civil engineering or AI applying it to a business case or applying it, you know, you don't have to decide and know everything about AI because you may just borrow the concept and let right. them explain it. And that is going to empower the way that we navigate education. And students are going to decide, hey, I want, I want this element of knowledge to be 
taught from maybe the best person in, in the market. Sure. So I, I'm, I really believe there's going to be a shift. And once faculty recognize, when we think about future of learning, they're the center of that in terms of how we do it. Mm -hmm. Now, is the student the, the end, end product? Sure. So there's going to be two uh, design thinkings that need to happen. How does a faculty really disseminate their information? And how does students really absorb and learn and become the brand of that institution? Yeah. And, you know, you just said something, too, that made me think, and I'm going to go out there a little bit here because we always have conversations about this, but I'm going to walk away from higher ed for just a minute because there's organizations like, what is that, mastermind.com? I saw something for that the other day where it was like Ron Howard is teaching a course on film. Yeah. And of course, yes. I'm, if I'm someone who's interested in becoming a director, I want to take the course from Ron Howard. That's amazing. So when you talk about this, in high, I, I'm just curious your thoughts on where you see these types of artifacts being, you know, made and sold and, you know, where is, how does higher ed fit into, again, it's this future of learning, everything that we're talking about, but you're, you're specifically talking about this one piece that's higher ed related. And I'm just super curious how you feel about seeing these changes in learning and where, you know, what does higher ed do? Like, how do they keep up with that? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, higher ed, higher ed has a real, has an opportunity, right, to yeah. partner beyond the four walls of their campuses, yeah. right? That, that's one of the things that I think um, you will see the campuses that um, will come out of the pandemic stronger will be the ones that reach out beyond their campus and bring in the Ron Howards, bring in the Googles, bring in you know the learning platform leaders like Learn, uh, yeah. uh, Learn Mobile and, and others like that, right? Those are the ones that we're gonna start to see in the market as we start to shift in what we do. Um, when I think about you know, the direction of, of how higher ed is going to evolve, um, there is going to be different modals that, are, that need to be taught. I, I, I have something that I call um, learning chemistry because okay. we all learn differently. Differently, exactly. I'm visual, yeah, so the, there's five of them, right? It's visual, auditory, contextual, where you're reading. There is um, experiential, where you're hands-on. And the fifth is speaking, right? When, when people are, are interacting with each other and dialoguing, there is learning and absorbing coming on. Exactly. Right? So those five have to be used within the ecosystem of learning for campuses to really serve the students. Mm -hmm. Because think about the students. Um, if we don't serve it in their language, they won't understand it. If, a, if everything is taught in Spanish, or is taught in German and you only speak English, you won't understand it. Well, that's what we're kind of creating when we just have one modal. Right. If we only have that context only in reading or one context only in visual or one, you're going to lose people who don't, um, don't communicate in that learning right. chemistry. And I believe uh, institutions, when they start to really hum, it's when their artifacts come in in, in those five forms. Yes. And that's how the courses will be taught. And um, it will be tailored, it will be personalized. And that's where, you know, looking at a learning platform that allows for you to navigate that is gonna be really key right. uh, as we move forward. Um, so I'm, I'm excited about that. I, I agree. And, and now, you know, in the past, if a student didn't feel like they were learning through that particular method, there weren't a ton of options. But now, yeah. with the slew of options available, if they're unhappy, just like you said, they're the customer, they're going to go find what it is that works well for them, whether or not it's at your institution or not. I know a lot of the things that we're talking about right now, there could be some people listening in, especially if they're faculty members, and think, whoa, this is a lot. You know, How do I even go forward? Um, how do I even think through this whole new different way? And I'm sure schools could think that too. But I know you and I sit here and we talk about this and all we see is enormous opportunity. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we tend to push the boundaries and we tend to think through like, okay, well, instead of 
yeah, of course we can sit here and think how this is going to be so hard. How am I going to, you know, compete with Ron Howard and I'm teaching a film course, um, man, but there's so much more. I mean, he's only one person, right? So what do you say to that? What do you say to people that this is concerning to? Yeah. You know, for that film, you know, teacher that's teaching the same course that Ron Howard is teaching, you bring Ron Howard into your classroom, right? It's a, it's a simple thing. Like you don't have to be the expert in everything. No. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, creating my uh, course on future work and future of learning and blockchain and all these courses that I'm creating. Matt Alex only knows it to a certain level. I understand the concepts of them, but I'm actually going to bring the leaders that speak to each of those elements and I'm going to let them explain it yeah. and I'm going to give it context to it. Right. So I think faculty, you know, you don't even be afraid of the Ron Howards. There are going to be other film teachers and other campuses that are going to become very accessible right. and they should recognize, Hey, it's better to become a unified front in the way that you educate the masses. You know, that's why the educational marketplace is really important. It's a concept that is a little foreign, right? It's, it's, it's a hard thing for people to understand and the folks that are afraid of it, I would say the way that we have to approach an educational marketplace, or anything that's future of learning is incrementally. Um, it's allowing for us to become evolutionary in the way that we educate, the way we teach, the way we learn. Um, it, don't make it revolutionary. Like, just don't, you don't have to flip it all the way to the other side. Because right. remember, there's some folks who still need it the same way that it's being right. taught today. And we don't want to lose them either, right? Mm -hmm. We want to give them options. So. In, even in my future of uh, work and future of learning and my smart campuses, everything that I speak to is about incremental transformation. I and that. I never really look at, you know, um, one, one of the things I always look at is what is the future? What is the goal of that future? What are, what are we trying to aspire to? And who is being impacted by that? And then how do I design moving forward? Mm -hmm. And I actually forget about what I did in the past because the past is just what you learn from. You exactly. actually have to move forward and start to design your courses with the learning chemistry, with the educational marketplace, with you know, the ability to, to bring other industries in. I'm a big believer. I have all these different concepts inside of, of my future of learning. <laughs> We have something called uh, the educational value chain, right? Mm -hmm. Is there's industry that is constantly innovating and within them, they have future work going on. Like what's the work of the future? How does the technology impact that work at that industry? And what type of new jobs are needed? What type of new mm -hmm. skills are needed? And those are then gonna come back and uh, industry is gonna be looking for employees and students with those skills. Well, in that chain, you have uh, higher ed institutions that have to recognize that, you know what, that industry is changing. That industry is now morphed with a little bit of technology embedded in it. Mm -hmm. And so you can't just teach an AI course. You have to teach an AI course that applies to different industries. You have to teach an AI course that does something else. Even data science, like data science is, is a word that everyone uses. You have to apply, how does data science apply to different um, organizations in the market and insta industries? I always start with the campus, right? I always say, how do I use AI for, for my campus? How do I use um, data science for my campus? How do I use blockchain for my campus? Mm -hmm. Knowing that those same use cases can actually be uh, used in industry, and in most cases, it's already being used in industry. I just have to come back and apply it inside of my campus in a much faster way than we've ever would need to do because the market's already doing it. So what they, what they spent three years doing, we can do it in six weeks or eight weeks or 10 weeks. It's a much different ecosystem from them when I was designing student systems that would take 18 months oh. to 24 months. And then in the end, we're still looking at the same road that we've been uh, driving to, right? We've been repaving the same system. Um, and that I is love your the, article, the article you sent me exactly on that, which was, you know, you talked about how 
we kind of have made choices that really it's not like moving the needle forward. Um, no. was that like, it was the five mistakes higher ed. What was the title of the article <laughs> that you? <laughs> I, I, have a, I have a bunch of five and five. So uh, okay. I know that I, I, I've done one on rebooting but, higher ed. I've done the five value drivers. I've done the five uh, changes in consulting. I you think know, that I, was I, it. I have yeah. All, yeah. Yeah, there's there, well, there's some good ones, and we'll make sure you guys get a hold of Matt's articles. But there, but you just were mentioning one that I really, really enjoyed, which was you know how schools when they make the decisions at times, it really was like to overhaul a system as opposed to change focus. You know, it's it, it was a different way. But that led me to think, you know, you you talked earlier about these rules. And, and I think everyone who has either had a toe or a foot or full body into higher ed, you know, we all know that things can take a long time, that there are, um, there are rules in place. There are some very strict policies, um, all different ways that we need to get approvals, especially when you're creating new courses. And I wonder when you're talking about this kind of change, I'm curious, you know, I'm assuming that this is stuff that you do through Beyond Academics and the work that you do yeah. with institutions. I really am wondering when you say oh, we, you could do this in six weeks, you know, for a school that hasn't yet been able to think of things that rapidly, how do you approach that with them? Yeah, so change comes in, in multiple forms, right? Um, there is change in policy. And I'm going to come back to that in a second. I'm going to talk about changing policy. But there's change in efficiency. And that's the six to eight week efficiency that Got I'm it. talking about. Got it. I don't have to change a policy on certain things that you're already doing. I'm just going to make those elements that is mundane or could be automated or can be enhanced by a system. In most cases, a system that they already own. One of my big tenants is uh, let's 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 double down on the investments you've already made like I don't want to bring another system in your discussion I just want to use what you have but let's start using it like right. it's like somebody just using an iPhone just for their phone call right. when they actually have features and function that they might have turned off or they or just never have clicked on to do that's what university systems are in a lot of cases. There are systems that are really robust, but because they wanted to follow the procedures and policies of history, the historical elements, they actually spent a lot of money on these new systems, which are really state-of-the-art, are modernizing every term, every year, every, whatever the concepts of, of their rolling uh, updates. And schools turn, to turn it off. It's because they don't have the leadership in their campus to go and say, are we doing this right? Right? So now let's go back to the policy discussion and the procedures discussion. This is just a leadership issue. Mm -hmm. Meaning, if you're running an organization and the policies you have are not serving your constituents, okay? If you become a student-centric or human-centric institution as opposed to an institutional centric uh, institution because institutional centric is what most universities are designed they're designed upon the policies the procedures the term you you name the the things that they're following if you start to look at it from a student perspective you start to recognize this isn't really good to keep our students into a a, a 16 week term it doesn't make sense but we do it and until leaders all come together and go to the accrediting bodies and go to the, the, yes. the government agencies that say, hey, we have to change the way we do this, right? That's when you're going to start to see, you know, change. Uh, during the COVID, I, I've been on calls many of times about certain, many different things, right? Yeah. Um, one of the calls that I had was from a, a nursing dean. And... They just said, look, we are not able to certify and credential our students because they haven't completed their hospital rotations. Well, of course, they haven't completed it because they can't go in the hospitals. You know, because of COVID, they were restricted. And yet, they have these restrictions within their academics that say, you need this 12 weeks of work, you need this. And so I said to them, 
you have to get a set of all of the deans that are in the same boat, all the nursing needs, and you have to go to their crediting bodies, and you have to get exception, and you have to move drug. You have to start moving it. Yes. And if the crediting bodies say, hey, we can't do that, then the question is, are those the right crediting bodies for the type of institutions that I want my son or daughter to even go to, right? That was the first thing I said. Like, if my accrediting body can't see the future, do I really want them as my accreditors for the degree that my daughter is gonna get for the jobs that doesn't exist when she comes out? That's when you start to have the discussion. And that's what I'm really passionate about. That's why I've been writing about a lot of stuff. And no, you know, I even love Starting it. Beyond was, was based on a lot of, of, Matt, you gotta go and speak it. If you believe it, you have to speak it. And I had a partner when I was, was leaving you know, uh, Deloitte that said to me, you believe in this. You're leaving you know, the partnership because you believe in what you're wanting the market to do. Don't sit on the fence when you think a provost or a president wants you to not be on the other side of what they want. You have to jump and say, I'm swimming. I'm getting my boat. I'm, I'm going this new path. Who's going to follow me? And I took that. I took that as a, as a, That's a advice to say, of advice. <laughs> advice that said, look, if you're leaving you know, the mothership to go embark on something, don't hedge on it. Yep. Take it and run. And I believe Go. that is an advice that all leaders, even leaders within a higher ed institution saying, if you believe it, you have to gain the followership and yep. the consensus you and you have to build the why. Yeah, you have to build the why. You know, yep. I, one of my biggest strengths, I, I believe, is my ability to have you know communicate and tell stories mm -hmm. and and one thing i recognize now is that when i communicate and i tell stories i get followership why because my my stories put a vision in front of people they understand what matt is yes. wanting to do now yes. they may or may not agree with me and the ones that don't want to agree with me i totally respect that i right. totally understand and I believe there's a lot of people that will go that other path. And I, and I choose to do this because I believe it's the right thing to do. And I'm hoping others will see it. But in the yeah. end, yeah. No, I, you know, I love this because I'm thinking back to when we started this discussion and what you talked about with these students at, in the law school and how the rules that were so structured and you were even at the time putting them in place and here's Howard. <laughs> coming yeah. in and giving the exception. And I wonder, you know, I think back like in terms of skills, because we always talk about, you know, the skills that make you the most su successful. And I see that you've taken this, like I'm just seeing the connection here to you saying, I was the rule follower. I experienced something in which I saw what happened when people went outside of it and how much joy it created because we were looking at their needs and serving them value. And now it's almost like you've taken that and you've made it everything that you focus on now. And I just, I, so like from a skill perspective, would you say this is like this storytelling, this being able to take this dream and let people know what's in your mind? Is that, do you think that's like your best skill, if you will? Like, is that your? <laughs> it, yeah. So there, there's people that don't like my stories. You know, it's too long. It's not concise, you know. Uh, there's people that don't have the attention span, you know, and don't care. Sure. And I realize that they don't care, and, and that's okay, right? I, I get it. The ones that understand my passion, um, I really believe in the why. Like, why am I doing this? And if I'm following my why, I'm hoping others follow me. And, and so far beyond, I'm, I'm getting good followership. People are coming to work with me and, and you know, changing the landscape. And I'm getting leaders and presidents and provosts and, and mm -hmm. chancellors who are, are reaching out to saying, you know what, I believe in what you're saying. How do I make that a dialogue within my own campus? So part of my storytelling is creating a narrative for others too. So yeah. Yeah. the reason that I write now is I want others to have narratives that they can take into market as to like why 
should be, why should we look at the future of higher ed? Why should we look at a future of learning? Why should we look at future of work? It can't be just my narrative. It has to be everyone else that writes and thinks about it. And, and I follow a lot of people who write about future work and future of learning. And you know what? I love it. I, I you know, ping them on LinkedIn. And, and, I'm and right it's, there it's with you. Energy that I get. <laughs> yeah, it's an energy that I get. And, and, I, and I really drive off of that. You know, the ironic thing is I never recognized a skill of storytelling till my one of my close friends uh, and he and i are, are now embarking on this future workbook um but this was before we even had this discussion and this is when he he became a uh, a professor at a university my alma mater and um his job prior to that was he's a comedian and that was his job and so he took on this new course called improv for business and he called me and he said i want you to be my first guest because you're an alumni from here, you worked at this university, these students were, were you at some point in time, can you come and speak to them? So I remember, you know, yeah, I'm like, sure, I can come and speak to you. And, he's, and, and I said, oh, tell me what I got to prep for. He said, oh, I'm just going to ask you questions and, and we'll, we'll get through it. You don't have to prep. And uh, I went through that exercise. He dialogued with me for about 45 minutes, just asking me random questions, students, were, uh, were asking me questions. And then about 45 minutes into the class, he stopped the class and he said, all right, what did you learn here? And, and I'm like, I don't know what they learned other than me telling you know, them what I did at the university and so forth. Um, he stopped and he said, Matt is a storyteller. So everything he does, he talks through a story. He said, you guys were all engaged because when he talked about the red scarf, he talked about the red scarf at the at the library because he brought you into that story and that I went I remember going back to my wife that night and going you know I told you I didn't know what I was going to speak about and he made me an example <laughs> that I'm a just a guy who just talks a lot right and and how important was that but then that's when I started to realize that storytelling allowed people to understand what I believe in yeah. and it also made me personable it made me uh, relatable. It allowed me to uh, become vulnerable. Yeah. Simple. All those things are really important in communication is that we are all have a little bit of ding inside of us. We get dinged about things that I, I'm actually a nervous speaker. Yeah, I'm a nervous speaker usually and, and it'll come out in certain times. But once I get into the flow and I start telling stories, it goes away. I'm but the I, same way, honestly. Um. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but once we're in, in, a, in a conversation, the natural me just comes out. And I think it becomes, you know, where I'm just coming from the truth of what I believe. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important piece. And I think the, the one word that I would say storytelling lets you, what brings out is it brings empathy. Yes. It brings empathy to your own story. But then you also have to empathize when people are talking to you. Yes. You have to understand why they're frustrated. Why? And that was one of the things I recognized at the law school. You know, they had a lot of pressure, mm -hmm. right? That, that B, B that should have been a B plus, you know, could mean, you know, an honor on their, on their transcript exactly. for a job, right? Yep. It was an empathy. I, Coming, coming from a criminal justice major, at that time not having my master's degree, not going beyond the registrar's office, I didn't empathize. I couldn't figure it out because I was so focused on the institution that I actually failed to see the person yeah. and the empathy that they had. And the greatest thing about it is in my LinkedIn, I have tons of those law students that I supported. Amazing. Who now are doing really great things. Like they'll ping me here or there. And I was just a clerk, really. I was a really glorified clerk in a lot of cases. And that's okay, because I'll be honest, the things that I learned in those days is why I could walk into a campus today and immediately understand what's wrong with that campus. There's many consultants that will walk in and they'll have to do a six-week assessment on what, what's happening on that campus. I don't normally need to do that, because you know what? Just having a dialogue, I can tell you what's happening on that campus because I was already there. Yeah. Um, 
And the campuses haven't changed from, I can go back to my old office at my current university, my old university, wow. and it's the same people doing the same thing, right? And, and I, if I were to ever go back, and, and I did have an opportunity to go back and become you know, the director and become the, the, the executive director, I remember going back and I came back and I said, I, I can never do that because they won't transform. It's going to be slow and it's going to be mundane. And, and I'm going to be at a much different pace because I'm really going where the future is. Mm -hmm. Like I'm always thinking about how do we get people to the future and how do we drive that? And that's going to be, you know, I always tell my daughter, like, I don't really care what major you are. Figure out what's happening in the market and how do you learn how to learn what that means. Yeah. And that's the driver in how education be, should be taught. I just, you know, I know that we have a lot in common when we talk about this, but I just love the way that you approach this. I love the way that you're able to walk into a campus and understand, you know, that, that storytelling as a skill. And like you said, they, it, being able to paint your picture in someone else's mind, bringing them into that, you know, helping, you've, you've listened and you've heard them and you've allowed, you know, the, a per, that people remember these stories, right? People remember when they were understood. Um, so I find that that is just such an important skill. And, and I, I say those things because for anyone out there that's wondering, well, how do I do this? I mean, do you, this isn't necessarily something we're born with, right? I mean, this is easily something no. that you can learn. I mean, we're talking about listening and being vulnerable. Um, yeah. That's not a the, you know, it's, it's, yeah, sometimes like we're sitting here and we're talking live and we both go out there and do keynotes and all these presentations all the time, but that doesn't mean that we're not, we still don't have the nerves, you know, for whatever reason, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's a thing that you can develop over time easily. Yeah. So one of the things that I learned also is, as I got through my ecosystem of like, just understanding what my, my ecosystem in my own world is. Um, I learned that I don't know everything and I'm not an expert in everything. And one of the things I've always learned is surround myself with people that accentuate your weaknesses, meaning being able to, to, to frame those weaknesses and, and be able to support it because they can do something much more innovatively and, and productively. Um, I have a little bit of ADD. I would tell you that I, I do a lot of different things. And so, you know, that 20% that I don't get to gets lost sometimes. <laughs> or I'll, I'll defer a discussion with someone else because I know that person will be much more concise and, and the person that's speaking to, that he's speaking to, doesn't have the attention span beyond, you know, a five second dialogue because he has other important things that he's thinking through, right? So I would usually delegate like, hey, hey have that discussion because it's better if we understand where your weaknesses are and how do you build a structure around you to do that. Because we all have weaknesses, right? Um, right. I, I mean, you yeah, hear, I think, hear Richard Branson say it all the time, that he, yeah. like, his secret to success is just hiring people that are smarter than him. But what he really means yeah. is hiring to his weaknesses, right? Because yeah. he's very smart in his own right. Um, but it's, you know, it, but it's that concept where you just kind of know yourself and it's totally okay to not be the expert at everything. It's just impossible, but focus on those strengths keep developing those strengths and, you know, sort of like divide and conquer, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And when you are asking for someone to come and help you, one of the things that they have to know is what do you believe in? Mm -hmm. what, are you, what are you striving for, right? You can't just have someone come and help you. No. Like it, that, that's not going to help because they're just going to do the work. But if you enable them with the vision of I'm trying to do this, this is where I want us to go. This is the direction that I think this institution should go. Then the people that are doing the work that I would say, hey, they're better at, you know, will come in. Like, I get branded really well because my branding side of my beyond academics is phenomenal. Matt Alex can't create a PowerPoint within anything. Now, I can create the shell of it. I can create the content. I can even tell you about what I want in that PowerPoint. But I'm certainly not going to do PowerPoint. And the reality of it is we don't even use PowerPoint now. We use much more modern technology right. because right. these folks that are, are really strong in it are using these innovations. So when I do my presentation, I'm using different technologies that isn't a PowerPoint anymore. And I would have never have done that. But because I've gotten the strength 
of people who are really good in that element. Mm -hmm. And that's their world. That's their skill. Yes. You start to, to really look better and, and more powerful in market because you have this, you know, backbone that's really there. And it really goes back to like getting people to understand what you're really believing in. It's very true. So would you say with this skill, you know, I like to always talk a little bit about where you develop these skills. You have a bachelor's and master's degree. Do you find that it was a combination of that foundation with the work experience? Because it does sound like those experiences really allowed you to see things in a different way that you weren't seeing at the beginning. Yeah. You know, when I, when I did my criminal justice major, as my, you know, as I selected it, you know, I, I started off like every other Indian kid coming out of, out of high school, going into it, you're, you're going to go become an engineer and you launch into this world of you're going to become an engineer because your parents want you to be an engineer. And then you realize calculus isn't for you and you don't like calculus. You don't like, you know, all the things that come with that. Right. And so I had to, you know, stop and think about what I wanted to do. And I wanted to help people. I picked criminal justice because I wanted to help people. Uh, I wanted to help, you know, juvenile systems and, and things like that because I worked at a boys club and, and that was my storyline. Like, oh, you know what, I'll just go and become, you know, a, a juvenile person, you know, that supported juveniles. And so I picked criminal justice for that. But when I look back at my criminal justice degree, and some people will look at it like, oh, he's a criminal justice. Like, and I, I want to be able to say to people like, people are engineers and they don't design systems that I have designed and thought of. Like they, they're not there. And the irony of it is I don't have an engineering degree, but I have actually now designed software uh, like, a, like yeah. an engineer would, right? Yeah. And I do it today, even in my future work and my digital campuses. Like mm -hmm. I can think about blockchain in a much different way. And I'm a criminal justice major that has never taken a, a CS course. Because you but understand the problem. I understand the problem. I also, in my criminal justice, if I think about what I was doing during my criminal justice, one, I like the, I like the stories that I read, the briefs. So I, list, I read briefs and, I, and there was a story to be told. And those stories had, you know, you know kind of like decisions that were made by, by a judge. And then you take those decisions, you disseminate that information and then apply it mm -hmm. to the cases that the, the, instructor would give you and say which cases apply to this yeah and now when i look back that's what i do every day i look at everything that i've you know what what worked in some other industry what worked in my campus and then i say how do i apply it to the future and then i start doing the same thing that i probably was doing in case study right uh and yeah i'm not a criminal justice major didn't go to law school and all that but I will tell you my um, liberal arts degree was really important. And when we hear that, you know, in, in higher ed, that a liberal arts de degree doesn't matter, it's because everyone's thinking of it as a job skill and that's not what we want. We want to build the holistic student through that process. Exactly. And the majors within liberal arts is what you're, you're interested in. The actual learning is what you're really degreed on and your discipline is what you're really degreed on and I think as schools start to recognize it and put that in place uh, they'll morph their liberal arts degree because it, it has to be morphed with multiple right. uh, academic um, paths so that you can learn AI but then apply it to criminal justice or AI apply it to sociology or uh, data science to you know marketing like this I can tell you all the different intersections completely where you, you just you don't need to know data science you just need to know how it will impact the things that you're passionate about and that's where I would say to a student all the time is you don't need to know the back end of stuff like there's so many back end things that are happening in the world that nobody knows of we just need to know how that product will support what you're trying to do. And that's how we drive it. It's so true. It's still a wonderful foundation and it doesn't mean that it's going anywhere. It just means that there are gonna be people that go and sit down for that liberal arts degree for that four year period. And there are gonna be people that go about it in a different way. 
Yeah. Uh, but with that, what you're actually learning there is a really important piece. And I love the coupling with, you know, what you've learned even through your experiences over time. So I feel like we might end it on that note because I think that's a wonderful lesson learned. But is there anything else that you'd like to share, Matt, before we um, finish up here? Um, the, the only thing that I always kind of end with is that you have to design for tomorrow. Like we can't keep redesigning what we do today. You have to look at what is out there for tomorrow. How does it help uh, the students of tomorrow? How does it help the employee of tomorrow? And start to look at it that way. So when we think about future of learning and future of work and smart campuses and all these things, you know, our goal is to create opportunities for everyone that's going to benefit from that. Not only uh, as a benefactor of what we're going to gain in the, the innovations that we see, but also what type of opportunities will my daughter and son have when they come out of college to do this amazing set of technologies or amazing set of innovations in market, you know, and, and that's why I'm always charged because I'm always looking at the future. There's a, there isn't a day that I get bored because I'm, I'm thinking about the next, the next, and it's kind of a fun thing. And I think if people look, look at it that way, um, they'll start to see we have a lot in front of us. And while the pandemic has, has put a little bit of a damper in, in a lot of cases for us, what, when we come out of this you know, pandemic, we will be better. We will also have the ability and the license to change what we do. And that's going to be the most important piece as we move forward. Right, exactly. I would even say it, it's lit a fire. You know, it's lit a fire under things like you said that were happening before. And if we think about tomorrow, if we think about designing for that future state, then you can't go wrong. So I think that's a wonderful message to end by, Matt. Thank you so much again for joining us today. For those of you that would like to follow Matt, he's available on LinkedIn at Matt Alex or on Twitter um, at the new handle FutureXHigherEd. That's future, the letter X, higher ed. And if you'd like more information on Beyond Academics, please go to their website, beyondacademics.com. Thank you all for listening in to this episode of Let's Talk About Skills, baby. If you enjoyed the podcast, would love to have you subscribe and I'd love to hear your feedback. So please feel free to rate, leave a review, shoot me a message. And if you'd like to follow me, Kelly Bailey, I am available on LinkedIn, Facebook, excuse me, Facebook or Instagram at Kelly R. Bailey. Well, thank you all and hope you have a wonderful day.